Well, Gary's not preaching this morning, even though we're talking about getting connected. But anyway, uh, that's normally his topic, and we normally leave that for him. But today I want to talk to you about it in maybe a little different way. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I do want to thank Quint for being willing to come and share with us this morning. And uh, I don't know about you, but um, we have a unique privilege as a church that we can get firsthand information from someone who's been in these places across the world. And uh, I don't take that for granted. I know that most of the time when we hear about missions and different things that are going around around the world, sometimes we have to read a book or read an article or uh, go on the website, the persecuted church. But I just thank God that God is sending people out from among us who are actually going to see what's going on. And evidently, okay. I thought the roof was coming in on us, so anyway, that's some heavy rain out there. All right, Galatians chapter 5, but I do thank uh, the Lord for Quint and his ministry and the way God is using him and the way it influences our church. Today, we're continuing the series, Kingdom Cultures. Look at the series introduction there on your outline. Because we are a collection of many people from various places, backgrounds, and stories, we believe culture making is essential for unifying our church family. Around a shared vision, as we carry the message of Jesus to the world, we exist to love God, connect with others, and reach the world. By creating a culture where Jesus is our lead story, scripture and prayer prime, worship is a lifestyle, where we are family, and then today, for those of you who may not have known what that is right there, we is greater than me, okay? Now, if you know mathematics, you know what that means, okay? But some of you have asked the question, what does that even mean? What is that? It's we is greater than me. And as a a result of that, look on your outline. We believe that as the body of Christ, we are growing to be a part of something greater than ourselves. The me mentality uh, fragments and dilutes the story of Christ that we are privileged to tell. We believe that we is greater than me. We believe everyone has a role to play and a story to tell. And we don't always have to get credit for everything we do because of the one who sees it all and, and rewards us all. For us, there is no they as in, I don't know who decided that, but they must not have been thinking about us when they did. In most organizations, they is simply a, a simple... <laughs> They is simply code for the people we don't know, can't see, and sometimes don't like. We are just we. That's why our first response is to assume the best of those who are leading and attempting to follow God's direction for our church family. We support, we trust, we unite. We squash gossip and encourage those around us. We don't always get everything right, so when needed, we talk to the proper people in the proper ways so that our we can become as strong as it can be. Because Jesus is our lead story, we do not elevate ourselves above him or one another. The truth is we are nothing apart from Christ, but because we are his, we don't cheat ourselves and live like we are nobodies. We are humbly confident in who God has made us to be. We believe humility and honor are the path to living out a culture of we is greater than me. It is God who rewards humility and honors people. Because he has honored us, we honor each other as we are becoming great, something greater than ourselves. We believe the practical implications of we is greater than me are best lived and demonstrated through being involved in a small group. We call them connect groups. These groups offer us the ability to do life together as we become all God desires us to be as a church family. 
while creating a culture where we is greater than me. I am so tired of talking already, okay? <laughs> but I hope you understand that this, again, what we're attempting to do in this series is to show you the culture that we believe we're seeing in Scripture. And we're literally trying to translate that and bring it forward in the common everyday language in which we can become all that God desires us to be. Everything that we've shown you thus far, we've backed up with Scripture. So we're not asking you to do anything greater than what the Bible is already telling us to be and do. And so I hope you understand that as we go through this today. And so look on your outline. The me mentality makes us weaker. The me mentality make us, makes us weaker. Look on your outline. Selfishness destroys the power of we. Selfishness. Now, selfishness, if you think about it, in the confines of everyday relationships, selfishness is the number one cause of conflict. It's the number one cause of arguments, the number one cause of divorce, the number one cause of war, the number one cause of divisions in church. Selfishness is the number one enemy of we. Now think about our natural inclination. Our natural inclination, our natural craving is to think only of ourselves. We are not only naturally selfish, but our culture feeds to self-centeredness. Have you noticed that? Everything is about us, what we want, what we desire. Everything is pitched towards us in that manner. And so therefore, it's not only our, our flesh that craves what we want, we have a society that tells us, go ahead and be, go ahead and do. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It doesn't matter what authorities that are out there. It doesn't matter. You just be and do as, as you please. And that is not biblical. It's not biblical. It's not what we find in Scripture. Every advertisement that comes out caters to our self-centeredness. The Sprite commercial from years ago encourages us, and I think I saw a commercial the other day, to obey our, your thirst or obey our thirst. It literally means obey your cravings, obey your lust. Now, how is the heart of selfishness established in us? Where does it come from? Why does it creep out when, when we least expect it sometimes? Where does it come from? The, the better question is this. What feeds our self-centeredness? It's our flesh. Our flesh. How many of you are perfectly aware that you have a flesh nature? That, that you remember there's just something there that just wants more. That's got to have this. Got to have that. We're all aware of it. And, and here's what I want us to understand. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul is actually, in, in these words, is going to show us what's happening within us as we're fighting the flesh. As we're fighting against this self-centeredness. And then he's also going to tell us what can come of our self-centeredness. So what does he say in verse 16? Paul says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, that's an interesting concept. Let me tell you how most of us fight the flesh. Here's how most of us fight, fight the flesh. All of a sudden, we feel something well up within us. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? You, there's a response that you want to give somebody. There's, there's a, an action you want to do. There's a craving that you feel like must be met in your life. And you're sitting there and you're teetering on it. And you're sitting there saying, no, I can't do this. No, I couldn't do this. No, I can't do this. The Bible says don't focus so much on what you can't do. But get tuned in to the whole idea that we are called to walk in the flesh. 
And so therefore, the best way to fight all that the flesh brings into your life is to not Feed the flesh. Don't let it be the central point of your focus of your life. Put it down. The Bible says literally, and we're going to see here in a minute, kill it. Crucify it. And the only way you do that is to go the opposite way. And that is to walk in the Spirit. And that's what we've been called to do. So I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh wars or lust against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. They're moving in opposite directions so that you do not do the things you wish. How many of you did something last week that you really wish you had never done? Or something you wish you'd never said? If you're married, I guarantee you that's in there somewhere. I guarantee because it just, it, it is. It's amazing how in the, the most intimate of our relationships, how it tends to creep out and creep into. Isn't it amazing? The more intimate, you know, perfect strangers we, we treat better than those we're most intimate with. Have you, have you ever noticed that? I mean, we give them the benefit out many times and all that. But the one where, oh man, we're engaged. It just comes out. And, and he's saying, hey, you need to fight against that. But then he says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, that's a very interesting statement. That, that's said in so many ways. Sometimes it's turned the other way. Many times in Scripture, Paul uses it a lot. Here's what that means. The law is that whole idea of do and don't. When you're operating in the Spirit... It basically says if you're being led by the Spirit, you're, you're on a whole different plane than the, law, than the law. You're operating in a way that you're in tune with God. You're in tune with His heart. You're in tune with the mind of Christ. All those things are happening, and guess what? There's no need for the law. Because you're operating in the way Christ would respond, in the way Christ would do. And he's very clear on that. And then he says this, now the works of the flesh, they're evident. They're evident. How do we know they're evident? Because we see this in our own selves many times. It says, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, which I believe is at the center of all this, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, uh, drunkenness, uh, rivalries, and the, and the like, which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what he's saying here, he's not necessarily saying, uh, sometimes we have those outbursts of wrath. There's times where we're saved and, and we should be walking in the Spirit, but the flesh creeps in and we do respond that way. But here's what he is saying here. When he says it will not inherit the kingdom of God, it's where your whole identity and who you are is wrapped up in these things. And y'all, these things should not identify who we are. When someone thinks of your name, they don't need to think, oh yeah, that's a pretty angry guy you're dealing with there. That, that, that's a person that, that I believe is in reference to that won't inherit the kingdom of God. The flesh, listen to this, through our selfishness, feeds what Paul is talking about here in these verses. It feeds. So, so you have the flesh, and what's the spark? What, what's, the, what's the thing that drives it? It's our selfishness. That we would rather have these things We'd rather have these things, and, and, and we're not so caught up in what God desires or what's best for our families or what's best for others. We want these things. We want to respond this way. Next, pride destroys the power of we. 
Are you aware that pride shows up in a lot of different ways? If, if you're always critical of others, <laughs> there's some pride sitting there. If you tend to be judgmental, if you, if you look down on others, if you tend to be competitive with others, if you're always comparing yourself with others, well, at least I'm better than so-and-so. If you have a difficult time saying you're sorry, if you only have shallow relationships and you don't let anyone else in, all these are demonstrations of pride. Listen to what the Bible says about pride. Look at Proverbs 28 here on the screen. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. Did you know that the prideful heart not only stirs up strife out there, but there's an internal strife that goes on within a person when that takes place? And, and a lot of times, how many of you have ever been with someone and then they react in a certain way and you're like, where did that come from? That was a total overreaction. That was a man. <laughs> There's an internal strife that goes on within that person. And, and I think it's all centered many times around this selfishness and this pride. What does pride look like in a small group? You always have to tell a story that tops the last story. Or you're always someone offering advice and you never ask advice in the group. You, you never admit weakness. You're never admitting the fact that you're struggling with something. Others may be opening up, but you're sitting there. And for some of you, you say, well, it's just a matter of trust for me. And I understand that initially. But eventually, I believe that the, the barrier there is more of pride than anything else. The problem with pride, listen to this, is it's self-deceiving. It's very deceiving. And the person many times to see. Did you know that the best indicator of recognizing someone, whether they're prideful or not, is normally the people closest to them. They see it more clearly than they see it. I remember years ago, and I've told you about this, uh, uh, this book that kind of helps you see where your sin is. You ever, you ever you've read a book like that? Well, I remember one time there was a whole section in there on pride. And I remember uh, seeing and, and realizing I had certain attitudes in my life and certain ways I saw things. And I didn't realize that the root of those things were pride. Were pride. And there's so many ways pride can come at us. Next, insecurity destroys the power of we. You know, when it comes to insecurity, it's an amazing dilemma. Here's what it says. We long to be close to someone, but we also fear being close to someone. That's what insecurity says. We long to have intimacy with others, but we're also scared to have intimacy with others. Insecurity prevents intimacy. Sin, let me tell you this, sin causes much of our insecurities. The insecurities that we deal with are, are I believe, are sin-based. I want to give you an example. One of the first stories we read in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, look here on the screen. It says, this is a story about Adam and Eve. You remember they went out and Adam and Eve, or Eve uh, ate of the fruit, directly disobeyed God. Adam comes in behind her, does the exact same thing. But then look at this. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, let me tell you why that's so important, the first part of that verse. is because that's a normal activity that they experienced with one another. It gives the implication that God came about that time every day to spend intimacy, to have intimacy with his creation, to have intimacy with Adam and Eve. And so that was something that was practiced. And here's what's interesting. We don't know the time between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. They could have, they could have had a relationship that went on and on and on and on for many, many years. 
And then all of a sudden, Genesis chapter 3 comes. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Can I tell you about that, that special time of day? That was a time I guarantee they looked forward to. I guarantee it's one of the most, this greatest part of the day is when God showed up. But this day is a little different. And it follows their sin. And we see the heart of insecurity here. And it says, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. The very thing that they longed for was intimacy with God. And where do we find them? Hiding themselves. Hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's very interesting that, that when you read the, a verse like this, you're seeing, into, you're seeing that insecurity. You're seeing the shame. You're seeing the guilt and all of it is just piled there. Let, let me just say this. The intimacy that God longed for with Adam and Eve and the intimacy that Adam and Eve longed for in their God, all of a sudden, all that has been broken down because of sin and the direct link to their insecurity and the shame and the guilt that they're experiencing. From this verse, we see that insecurity causes us to fear exposure, to fear rejection, to fear intimacy. And the very thing that we want the most, we never go there because we fear it. That's what insecurity does. That's what sin does. Next, resentment destroys the power of we. Resentment destroys the power of we. Everyone blows it. I was watching basketball. I think it was last night. And I was watching. And one of the guys, his last name is Blewett. I was sitting there, I was like, that's got to be, nah. And, and sure enough, bless his heart, he missed several three-pointers. And I'm just sitting there, he just blew it, blew it, I tell you, you know. But here's the point, y'all. We all blow it. Isn't it amazing how we th we're so deceived in our pride that, that we can harbor resentment towards other people. And we don't think we've caused anyone else a, a resentment towards us. You ever been around people like that? And, and, and I want you to think about this. Here's what we need to understand. Everybody blows it. We all make mistakes. We all sin. Because we are all imperfect. We're going to hurt each other. And others are going to hurt us. Listen, they're going to hurt us both, both intentionally and unintentionally. Do you know I've had people come up to me and say, I, I, just, I just want to come up to you and, 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 and talk to you about this because this really hurt me the other day when you said this or you responded this way. And, and I'll be honest with you, there's times I'm totally unaware and you're in the same boat. Sometimes we're totally unaware of, of the fact that we can hurt someone. And, and, and so many times that person many times won't open up. But here's what you need to understand. Hurt is part of the fallen world we live in. It's part of it. Misunderstandings are everywhere. So what is, what is more important is not the fact we're going to be hurt. Because we are going to be hurt. But how do we deal with the hurt? Hebrews 12, look here on the screen. It says this, pursue peace with all people and holiness. It's interesting. I can understand the verse saying something like this. Pursue, pursue peace with all people. Without it, no one will see God. But then it says this. It, it says this, with all people. And then it says, and holiness. It's talking about the purity of the relationship. It's the whole idea of something that can be seen completely through. 
And that's where the intimacy God desires from us. But he also desires us to have that same type of intimacy that we can see directly through the person, that the walls are not there, that there's a purity about the relationship. And then he says, if this is not the case, you won't see the Lord. Now, what does that mean? It means you won't see God work. It's interesting that 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 whole idea is, is something that Jesus actually repeated on the Sermon on the Mount. There's certain things. You remember he went through the Beatitudes. He started talking about all these different things. And he said, without these things, you, you won't see God. Now, what is he talking about? He said, you won't see God work. You won't see God do amazing things in your life. And it's very clear. And then he says this, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Now, this is not the whole idea of someone losing salvation. This is the whole idea of them not living in the reality of their salvation. So many times we forget. This is, this is what's so ironic about our lives. So many times we forget that we're living in grace. Think about that. We're living. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not going around boasting about what you did. No, here's the concept of your whole salvation in life. You're in grace. Therefore, if I'm in grace, how should I be operating? Out of grace. But boy, we can hold resentment, can't we? What's the opposite of grace? Resentment. Holding something against someone. Aren't you glad that with the, the grace that God offers us is, is free, is there, is, he, he, he always operates out of grace, but yet we have the nerve to say that we've experienced that grace, but we are not going to extend that grace? Think about the hypocrisy. He goes on. He says, uh, if you're not operating properly, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by this, many become defiled. You ever been in some kind of issue with your family? And, and, and there'll be something between this person and this person. And you're just in the family. And you're affected by the defilement that comes from that relationship. We've all been there. Can it happen in a church family? Oh, it's happening. Not, thank goodness I don't see big deposits here at Putnam, but it happens. Talk to people. It can happen to all relationships. One of the purposes of a connection group or a connect group is to help you think straight when you've been hurt. When you get hurt, you need other people around you who can think unemotionally. They're not emotionally tied to something. They can help you think more rationally about it. Maybe they can get you to, to leave the confines of the flesh in which you're operating and move into walking in the spirit and challenging you in that direction. Listen, those who can help you Work through hurt. That's the people you need to surround yourself with. By the way, if you have a spouse that always believes they're a victim, they always believe everyone else is hurting them, and and you're not speaking into their life and trying to help them work through their hurts and trying to help them to see, hey, have you ever looked at it from this point of view? Have you ever tried this? Have you ever? Then you're not doing your spouse any favors because it's it's amazing how quick we become victims in this world. And you know why? Because we got a whole bunch of people out there, including the government, telling us that we should look at ourselves as victims. We're not victims. We're victors in Christ. And we need to live that way. Now, let's change gears. The we mentality makes us healthier. And here's the opposite. Selflessness destroys the power of me. 
If you want to operate in the spirit, learn how to live selfless. Here it is, Galatians 5. I hope you didn't turn because we've got to look at some more verses there. Galatians 5, look, look at what Paul says, verse 22. Here it is, we're all familiar with it. But the fruit of the Spirit is. Hey, if you choose to walk in the Spirit instead of the flesh, if you're crucifying the flesh and you're saying, today, God, I want to walk in the Spirit, God, what will that look like? Here it is right here. Love, joy. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can I ask you a question? Is drama included in this list? <laughs> you ever been around people that it's just like, it's just constant drama? It's like, oh, you just feel dirty when you get around certain people. It's like, oh, man, please quit. Just, is there anything good that's ever happened? You're killing me. <laughs> he says, here it is again. Against such, there's no law. <laughs> when you're operating in the spirit, you're superseding what the law says. You're, you're more than fulfilling the law. You've taken on the heart of God. You've taken on the mind of Christ. He says, verse 24, those who are Christ, the reality of those who are Christ, here's what they've done. They've crucified the flesh. What does that mean? They put it to death. Let me just tell you this. Anyone who would have read in the first century that something was crucified, here's how they would have described it. A violent, radical death. It's not just something where it's like you inject it and say, well, die. Die. I, re I refuse to operate here. It, it, it speaks of, uh, of, of tremendous, tremendous uh, pain associated with it. And let me just tell you this. Sometimes crucifying the flesh is painful. And it should be. But here's what we need to understand coming out on the other side. It's exactly where God desires us to be, and it's exactly the place where it would be best for us if we would crucify the flesh. He says, crucify the flesh with, with its passions and desires. And in verse 25, Paul gives a challenge. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let's start walking in the Spirit. What does walking mean? It means literally how you live your daily life. That's what he would have meant by that. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. He, he gives you one last thing. Don't let this be your identify who you are. You be identified as someone who's walking in the Spirit. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be there shortly. Philippians chapter 2. Now, as you turn, listen to this. Did you know that if you start acting selfless in a relationship, it many times forces the other person to change? And here's why. Because when you become a different person, they have to relate to you differently. Think about that. If I'm always operating the way I always operated, guess what? I'm going to get the same, the same reaction. But if I begin to operate differently and I go from being selfish to selfless, then what happens many times, they have to respond a different way. And by the way, if they don't respond a different way, let me tell you what happens. It becomes very awkward for them. If you don't believe me, try it. 
And then all of a sudden they feel like, and even they feel the awkwardness. Because you're putting out one thing that's, I believe, spirit-led. And, and they're coming at it from the flesh. And guess what? There is going to be, there's going to be something amiss there. But if I'm anchored in, in the flesh and they're anchored in, in the flesh and we're throwing jabs back and forth in the flesh, guess what? That just feels pretty natural, doesn't it? I mean, be honest. You know what I'm talking about. But if I choose to react differently... They may choose not to act differently, but if they don't, if they do continue to act the same way they've all, it will always be awkward. And I guarantee you, you'll see it, and they'll sense, start to sense it. So selflessness not only transforms the relationship, but it can also transform the people it's directed at. Philippians chapter 2, here it is, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he's saying in, in, in all these things, if these things are in place, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He's speaking to the church here, y'all. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Now, did he say... Only those things that are closest to your heart should be done with selfish ambition or conceit. What does he say? Let nothing be done. That does not need to be the place in which you respond to others and respond to your God. You don't start from the basis of selfish ambition. He says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem esteem others better than himself. Did anybody pull that off last week? Let each of you look out not only for your own, his own interests. You know what he's implying there? We, we all have needs. And there's times we need to focus on those needs that we have. And, and not expect, he doesn't talk about the expectations of others. He's saying he's, you, you are aware of your own needs. But here's what you need to understand. But also the interest of others. So many times I see families just kind of anchor in and... It's only, if you're with us, I'm going to meet your need. Anything outside of that, I'm not. You know, families have got to open up. Individuals need to open up. So how do we become selfless in our connect groups? By showing up. (laughs) People are counting on us. By accepting new people in your group. By really listening to people in the group. By offering help to others in the group. By offering your abilities in the group. Listen to this. God rewards selflessness. There is only one way to live selflessly. Here it is again. By crucifying the flesh, it allows the Spirit of God. Listen, when you do that, it allows the Spirit of God to work in you and through you. Next, humility destroys the power of me. In 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3, Paul's going through this long list of relationships where you're talking about the relationship, the employer with the employee or the husband with the wife or the wife with the husband or the children with the parents. And then here's how he concludes it all right here on the screen. He says, live in harmony, be sympathetic, love one another, have compassion, be humble, not returning evil for evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, blessing. Operate differently on blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. You want blessing in your life? Walk in the Spirit. Do what God says. Next, love destroys the power of me. Love destroys the power of me. 1 Corinthians 13. It's so ironic that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it seems like in Christian circles, we've reserved those verses for just weddings. Have you ever noticed that? 
1 Corinthians chapter 13. I guarantee you probably uh, two, three out of every five weddings you ever attend, this passage is going to be shared. And it's, it's given to the most intimate relationships between a husband and a wife. Paul didn't give this to the husband and wife. You know who he gave this to? The local church. The church at Corinth. He said, this is how you need to operate. He says, love suffers long and is kind. It's patient. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Love, it bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. You know what's really interesting when you read this passage? Paul's the one giving it to the church. You can almost hear him preaching it, can't you? You hear how they, you ever seen them preachers get on a roll? I mean, they just start really, and some of them, we break out singing it. You know, I'll never do that, I promise. But anyway, <laughs> here's another one. Forgiveness destroys the power of me. Forgiveness. Think about that. What's forgiveness? Forget, forgiveness is letting go of the hurt. Letting go of the right to get even. God is speaking to the nation of Israel here in Isaiah 43. Look here on the screen. And, and by the way, any, I believe, now a lot of people don't agree with me on this, so that's fine. But I believe most of the promises given to the nation of Israel can be given to the Christian. Can be given to anyone who's in covenant with God. And we're in covenant with God through Jesus Christ. And so here's what I believe. I, I believe this is definitely him talking to the nation of Israel. But this is what God is saying. He says, don't remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. He's like, don't, don't keep going back there. How many of you know people that just live in the past? They're constantly talking about what you did to me back here. They're constantly talking about all that going on back there. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth, shall you not know it? He's basically saying, I'm going to do a new thing. And if we can get rid of living back here in the past and get our eyes forward, I'm going to show you a new thing I want to do in your life. And let me just tell you this. If some of you here today are holding on to resentment and anger and hurt and unforgiveness, let me just tell you, you won't see a new work happening in your life anytime soon. I'm just here to tell you. Because God wants to do a new work. But instead you're entrenched with your resentment and unforgiveness. He says, I want to do a new thing. And it's going to be obvious when I do it. And then here's what he says. I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I guarantee you if there's someone here today and you're entrenched with your resentment. And you're entrenched with your unforgiving heart. I guarantee you life has become a wilderness. I guarantee you, your heart is, full, is like a desert. And it's old, crusty, hard ground that's sitting there that hasn't been stirred up for many years now. Because you know what? Because when that takes a hold of our heart, we become hard-hearted. We are closed to the new things God wants to bring to us. And that's where many of you, maybe, maybe not many of you, that's where a lot of you are. He wants to do a new work. Next prayer destroys the power of me. When we pray for someone, we become connected to them. Isn't it amazing what we do with, with how we feel towards someone? We, we speak critical of them. We'll involve. Here's what many of us do. We'll go find someone else who's not even associated with this, what's going on over here. And we'll say, can you believe what they did over here? And you want them to be critical to justify your criticism. 
And then all of a sudden, you start building this whole consensus that, yes, they deserve us to think critical of them. But you know what the Bible says? Pray for them. We go to everybody else, but we don't go to the one that can change it all. And, 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 and listen, when we, when we start to pray for someone, this is what happens in my heart. Here's what happens. We become less critical. Every time I made it a matter to pray for someone that hurt me or someone that I believe was wrong or some, when I made it a matter of prayer and God knew my heart that I was really praying on behalf, God, I want you to do a work here, I became less critical of that person. I began to care again for that person. And thirdly, and this is how I knew I was letting things go, I began to have compassion for the person. Compassion for the person. The reason, it's interesting. Here, anytime Christians get together, we say, anybody have any prayer requests? And please, I'm not knocking this. Our physical health is a big deal. Some of you are dealing with some difficult physical ailments right now. And please understand, they need to be prayed for. They do. The Bible tells us to pray for one another in that. But the context of our prayer for one another is not just physical ailments. The context of our prayer for one another is much deeper than that. It's about our soul. It's about what's going on within us. And I just want you to do this. I want you to think, I want you to write this down if it's not on your outline. It may be on your outline. I want you to write down Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. Paul is telling us how we can pray for one another. And and there's not anything in there about physical ailments. And y'all, that's fine to pray for you. The Bible tells us in other places to pray for each other's physical ailments, but not there. Also, I want you to, John 17, verses 20 through 26. There you'll find Jesus praying for us. Look at how he's praying for us. And I hope you'll make that a matter of prayer. Next, affirmation destroys the power of me. How how do we uh, affirm others? We show it. uh, I'm going to stop right here. (laughs) I'm out of time. I cannot believe how quick this clock moves. Anyway, um, but let me just close with this. And, and, And really... 1 Corinthians, this is how I intended to close. I'll, I'll give you the blanks next week. Don't panic, okay? I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you what you need. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 does one of the best jobs of talking about the interconnectedness of the church. It's a beautiful picture, and we're going to look at that in detail. So what I'd like for you to do, if you, if you believe in homework assignments, read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for next week. And we're going to look at that. We're going to break it down. But in the meantime, here's how I want to close this. And we are going to have an invitation, okay? Here's how I want to close this. If you're someone and, and, and you are someone who is sitting here today and, and you realize that God wants so much more for you, but you believe you're the one that's in the way of him doing so much more, that's just something the Lord's put on my heart standing up here right now. I just believe there's something that's going on in some of your lives right now that the reason you haven't seen him do a new work in your life is because you, you've hindered the process. You did it. He didn't do it. You did it. And the only way you're going to break through that is to crucify the flesh. Crucify the feelings that you have, resentment towards someone. Crucify all those emotions. Crucify all those thoughts. Crucify all those things and just say, God... I've been holding on this for a long time, and I want to be freed up. I want what other people seem to have. I'm tired of people 
or me sensing when I get around other people that they're rolling their eyes and they're thinking, oh, please don't keep dumping all this on me. I don't know where you are this morning, but I'm here to tell you God wants to do a new work in your life. And it's going to require you laying those things aside. So would you join me in prayer? Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just come to you right now. and Lord, we know that your spirit is at work among us, Father. I know that this is something you laid on my heart, even up here speaking this sermon. That there's a lot of people in here that aren't letting go. There's so much more that you want to do in their life. There's relationships in their life that you want so much more from. Lord, you, you want to help them through this. But Lord, help them take that step of admission to realize that it's there. And then help that move to belief that, you, that they believe in the, the promises in your word and the work that you want to do in their life. And then, Lord, help it to turn into confession. The fact that you're going to agree, that they're going to agree with you and call it sin and, and say, I don't want this anymore. And, and let it become even more of maybe them going to another person. And, and, and Lord, just that that relationship could be restored. Father, I have no idea what you have in store for us. Father, I pray you'll do a work here today. Lord, I pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you today, be the day you bring them. If this is the church home you're called on to be a part of, we pray for that also. Just do. Have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to read the same.